Let me ask you a question that should be pretty simple to answer. Are you as a Jewish person allowed to settle in the land of Egypt? Well, based on this week's parasha, no. Question is, why not? Because the Rambam makes it pretty clear when it comes to the laws of marrying an Egyptian convert that they are no longer real Egyptians. Sancherov came along and he totally messed up the entire landscape of the Middle East and those Egyptians are no longer around. So by the same token, why can you not go live in Egypt? What, you're worried about the promiscuous Egyptians that the Torah describes? They're no longer there. Unless, of course, it's the land itself that somehow influences us spiritually and that's what we need to avoid. The Rambam does not say that. In fact, in Sefer HaMitzvah, he seems to make it pretty clear that our concern is the influence of the people. Logically, though, it makes sense that there must still be some indigenous Egyptians. And perhaps they still have enough power to influence those who come to live in Egypt. And we're going to have to look at what does it take to lose that original status, that original permanence in a place, at which point you are no longer considered a bad influence. So let's have a look at a Pasuk in this week's parasha. I mean, a Pasuk with parasha Seinu, the Pasuk tells us that a king may not have too many horses so that he doesn't get people to go back to Egypt, which is apparently where you bought horses. And Hashem has told you very clearly, do not ever go back along that path. In other words, back to Mitzrayim. So from that, from that we have learned that there's a prohibition against going to settle in the land of Egypt. But yes, sir, in fact, Chazal say even more than that, not just once in this parish, but that we may not return to Egypt. Three different places that the Torah tells us this prohibition. Now, the Rambam quotes this halacha clearly in the Yad HaChazaka that you may not go back to settle in Mitzrayim. And he quotes the Maimer Chazal that it's mentioned in three different places. And the way the Rambam puts it without any qualifications implies that the restriction is enforced still today. Today you may not go live in Mitzrayim. Which is why That's why there's so many Mephoshim who get into the nitty-gritty of how then could the Rambam himself have lived in Egypt. As well as various other Jewish communities over the period of history who lived in Egypt. How did they defend that position? So it's pretty clear that you may not live in Egypt. Here's the question. But when the Torah tells us that if a, an Egyptian converts to Judaism until three generations down the line, we may not marry into that family. So in that context, the Rambam renders the following halachic decision with the following historical background. When the Assyrian king Sancherev invaded the Middle East, he assimilated all the different nations and he uprooted people from their host countries and moved them into other places. And therefore, says the Rambam, the people who today occupy the land of Egypt are no longer the original indigenous ancient Egyptians because everybody's been mixed up and assimilated together. It's one big melting pot. And therefore, therefore, as a direct result of that, any person who converts from today's Egypt is immediately allowed to marry a Jewish person. 
Because any individual who leaves that population, we have to assume, belongs to whoever the majority is of the people living in Egypt. And the majority of people living in Egypt today have nothing to do with original Egyptians. Therefore, this person, I have to assume, is not an original Egyptian and can marry a Jewish person immediately. So, using that logic, Vim Kane, Kaven Shemitraim Bizmanazi, Artsam Shalanoshi Macherim, Sheenom Ibnea Mitzrim de Oz, if that country today is no longer real Egypt, it's actually occupied by other people. So why, why can you not go settle in Egypt today? It's no longer the same people. It's no longer the same problem. So the Here's one possible explanation that some of the Mephoshim suggest. That the reason we're not allowed to live in Egypt does not have to do with the population. But the land itself is toxic. That the land of Egypt is the problem even if there are no Egyptian people in that land. And we can possibly even argue that the Rambam himself indicates this in the next halacha. We can understand this from a rendering of halacha according to the Rambam and the specific language that he uses where in the very next law. Where he says, Let's say that a Jewish king authorized by the based in conquered Egypt, Shihimuteris, says the Rambam, I then believe it would be okay to live in such a country. The only prohibition that the Torah made was against individuals going to settle in Egypt or for Jewish people en masse to live there as long as it's under the control of idolaters. Listen to the language. Because the Rambam says, its deeds are more corrupted than any other land. It sounds like he's describing the place, not the people. Because it sounds, according to what the Rambam is saying, that the deeds of its place, not the deeds of its people, are corrupt. So that sounds like the, the problem going to Egypt may have nothing to do with who's living there. may have everything to do with the geography. Somehow the geography influences people as we see in the Medrash Rabbah. Like the Medrash Rabbah tells us that there are certain water sources that produce wise people, moral people, or for that matter, immoral, promiscuous people. Therefore, the logic would say, as long as that country, which is predisposed to promiscuity, if it's in the hands, in the control of bad people, idolatrous people, even if it's not Egyptian people, well, then it's a place that is corrupt and you're not allowed to live there. But if it's in the hands of Jewish people, then it is no longer a corrupt place and there'd be no problem. That would explain logically why the only way we'd be permitted to live in Egypt would be if it's conquered by a Jewish king authorized by Basin. Because that would totally transform the spiritual makeup of the country. And it would now no longer be a toxic, corrupt place. It would be a place that has the status like an Eretz Yisrael, a Jewish place. 
That means that the conquest would change the very character and nature of this place. And automatically it would no longer be an issue for us to live there. Okay, so here's the argument. Maybe the problem with going to Egypt has nothing to do with the population and everything to do with the country itself. And that's why even today when the people living there are no longer real Egyptians, we may still not live there. The only problem with that is the Rambam in his language doesn't really seem to say that. Because look, it's not clear. In the Sefer HaMitzvahs, the Rambam doesn't just allude to, as in the Yad HaZoka, where the words Ma'aseho Mukulkolin. Here he says clearly, The prohibition against living in Egypt is So that we don't learn from their deeds, not its deeds, the country, their deeds, the people. Vahainya, that means, that the Rambam is making it really clear that the prohibition against going to Egypt is not to expose yourself to the promiscuous influence of the Egyptian people. So we're back to square one. So if that's the reason, we really need to understand. Why is it still forbidden to live in Egypt today? Considering, as the Rambam told us, that the people who today inhabit Egypt are not genuine indigenous Egyptians. So what's the problem? Void. In fact, we could take the argument a step further. If your concern is really that the country has an influence over its inhabitants, then logically, then logically, even if it's impossible to learn from the people, let's say it's a time where Egypt is desolate and there literally are no people there, like in the time of the Babylonian Empire. Then we also should not be allowed to go live in Egypt even then because the toxic reality of the geography is going to influence us. And we don't have any precedent anywhere in Aloha that says you may not go down to Egypt when there's nobody there. So we've got to understand why are we still concerned about the population of Egypt if that population is not the original population. So in order to understand that, we're going to go back to the question of marrying an Egyptian convert, and we're going to see something the Levush says, which is very interesting about the fact that, realistically, as good a job as Sancherev did, it's impossible to imagine that he uprooted every single indigenous inhabitant of every country that he invaded. So there must still be at least a small enclave of original Egyptians. So with regards to the prohibition against an Egyptian convert immediately marrying into the Jewish community, look what the Levush says. When did that restriction apply? Only earlier in history, as the Rambam himself has said. But now that we're post the Sancherev era, where Sancherev mixed up all the nations living in the Middle East, and he imported new people to live in each country. Now listen to what the Levush says. You have to consider that there was still a small minority of indigenous Egyptians who remained in Egypt. Those people who remained in Egypt are considered permanently in Egypt, which is the halachic status of something kavua, something that is established as a real fact. And the halacha then is that whenever I have something which is an established fact, 
It doesn't matter how many other components are in the group. I will always look at the group as a 50 for 50. So there might be 10 million uh, in, immigrants who came into Egypt and a few hundred original Egyptians. From an Allahic perspective, anytime I encounter somebody in that country, I have to believe there's a 50-50 chance he's an original Egyptian. That's Allah. Kol but that will change. If one of those people now chooses to convert, then he separates himself from their original group. And then there's a different halacha. When I've got a group, and I don't know the, the nature of each individual in the group, anything that separates itself from the group, I will define by whatever the majority is. So let's say you've got a whole group of people and I don't know if they're Egyptians or if they're other people. And the majority of people, I'm assuming, are immigrants because that's the nature of what happened in that region. If anybody now leaves that crowd, I look at that, oh, you've left the crowd, then you've probably left the majority. You probably originate in the majority. Or Yad says, the Levush, such a person can marry Jewish immediately. Now let's follow this logic through. Or Lefize, following this logic. That there was a small amount of indigenous Egyptians who remained there even after all the chaos and upheaval of Sancherev. That would give us a logical reason why you may not return to Egypt even today. Why not? Because they are original Egyptians and we're worried about their influence and because they are indigenous and because they haven't moved they're not going to lose their identity because of all of the influx of immigrants. Like, let's say, Native Americans. They don't lose their identity. They don't lose their sense of their heritage just because of the influx of Europeans into their country. Because until a person makes the step to say, I no longer want to be part of that society, I'm leaving so that I can convert. Until that happens, they're very much in that society. That society has a very strong influence and has great power in its indigenous native space. And therefore, the entire space is considered And therefore, I have a concern. I can't go live there because there's a lot of influence of the original people. The only question is, and we really need to understand, because we're doing a comparison over here between how we look at the law of marriage of an Egyptian and how we look at the law of living in Egypt. Now let's have a look at what the Rambam says. How come the Rambam says pretty clearly, and so does the Shulchan Aruch, how come it is that the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch feel so confident to say that if today an Egyptian converts, we automatically consider that person to have left the group, therefore belonging to the majority of the, of the population who now is no longer Egyptian, and therefore he's allowed to marry a, a Jewish woman immediately. That sounds like the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch are pretty confident that in all circumstances, this Egyptian is Parish, has separated from the original population. Now, here's the logical problem with arguing that way. Haloi. Based on what we've just said from the Levush, seeing as the minority indigenous population of Egypt has remained in their original ancestral land, 
Surely then the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch should have made a very important distinction. If the prospective Egyptian convert leaves Egypt, then he is Parish. Then we can say, yes, called the Parish, whoever leaves the population is now considered based on the majority and he is kosher to marry. We should have made that distinction. And we should have distinguished what happens if a guy decides to convert to Judaism but remain in Egypt. In which case, if he's still in Egypt, he's still part of the established indigenous community. And therefore he has the halacha of mechza which means we've got to take a 50-50 view that this guy is probably an original Egyptian. And in that case... He shouldn't be allowed to marry a Jewish girl immediately. There's a whole interesting halacha which seems to be very similar to this, and that is the concept of a man who that's a in Gemorian Ksubis, where there's a, a man who has relations with a woman, and we need to know is the child now a a happy, happily acceptable Jewish child or not. So we need to know what was the nature of the man who impregnated this woman. Is it somebody who belonged to a kosher group, to a non-kosher group? So we're going to say in that Gemara, well, it depends. Did the, did the incident occur in the space of the group or outside of the space? Same thing here, right? Does the conversion and the now proposed marriage of this Egyptian convert happen in the space of Egypt, in which case we should be really strict and say, hey, he's probably Egyptian, or did it happen in a different country, in which place we could say, okay, he left, therefore we must assume he belongs to the majority and he could marry. So why doesn't the Rambam tell us this? Why doesn't he make this distinction? So possibly the most logical explanation would be, well, how does conversion work? Let's think about it pragmatically. In the process of conversion, a convert does have to leave home. Like the Lavush indicated in his language, he said the one who converts separates from his people. So we have to assume, in all likelihood, when a person comes to convert, for practical reasons, they have to leave home. They have to leave their community because they have to become part of a Jewish community. So perhaps we can just assume that the minute somebody is a convert, they've left their community behind. The only thing is that that's not really good enough. We don't need the convert just to leave his house. Maybe there's some little Jewish community living in Egypt. So he's going to leave his community and go to the Jewish community in Egypt. And that's not good enough. Because don't we need him to leave the country? Isn't that the moment at which we can say, oh, now he's no longer part of the original indigenous population for sure? So why don't the halachic authorities tell us these things clearly as we need to hear them? To explain this a little bit better, the question. There's a Gemara Yavamas that says, if a non-Jewish person does Kiddushin, the proper process of Kiddushin, nowadays, we are concerned that this might be a valid marriage. Because perhaps this person is one of the ten lost tribes of Israel and is really Jewish. And we have to take that seriously. So the Gemara asks, 
surely this individual who's now obviously stepped out of the rest of the world out there belongs to the majority. And the majority of people out there are not the ten lost tribes. They're not Jewish. So why are we even considering <coughs> that this might be a valid Kiddushin and all the ramifications? On my tarot to be Gemara. So the Gemara says, well, it all depends where this happened. Says the Gemara, we're talking We're talking where this incident happened in an environment where we know for a fact that there were originally communities of the ten lost tribes. As says, look at the Pasuk. The Pasuk tells us that he put them into, uh, at the time that there was this, um, the, the, the initial exile of the ten tribes, where did they go? Here, places that we know that they settled. So if, that, if you're in that environment, in that space, and some random person comes along, puts a ring, a ring on a woman's hand, says, is in front of witnesses, we have to assume it's a pretty good chance he's Jewish. Rashi. Rashi explains what's going on over here, but you'll see that there's a distinction between Rashi and Toysavis. Rashi says, What does it mean that these are places where the ten tribes are established? It means, there are certain regions where we assume that the ten tribes settled. Therefore, in that place, we assume that the ten tribes are permanent residents. Whenever you look halachically at a scenario where something is established as permanent and real, like this is habitat of the ten tribes, then the halacha is we have to look at 50-50 chance that this is actually a Jewish person. Where are these places? As the Gemara tells us. But Toysavus takes a slightly different perspective. And he says, That these are places where the majority of the people were actually from the ten tribes. The Toysavus disagrees with Rashi's angle. Rashi's angle is, because the ten tribes are known to be in this area, we now assume everybody in this area has a 50-50 chance that they're one of the ten tribes. Toysavus says, no, these are places where we know that the majority of the population in reality was actually the ten tribes. And therefore, when somebody comes out of this space, out of this region and approaches a Jewish woman, puts a ring on her finger, we assume he belongs to the majority. And who are the majority? The ten tribes. Now we can understand why Rashi does not want to explain as Toysavus does, that we know for a fact that the majority of the population in those areas were actually Jewish lost tribes. In spite of the fact that Rashi is of the view that when somebody leaves a particular space, as he says in Ksuvas, that person is considered Meruba belonging to the majority. The reason Rashi doesn't say the same thing as Toysavus is because Rashi doesn't see how Toysavus' explanation works in the words of the Gemara. The words of the Gemara were that there are certain places where the ten tribes are kavua. They're established to be there. Whereas Tosus is trying to say, not that it's established that these are settlements of the ten tribes, but that the majority of the people are ten tribes. 
That's the case, says Rashi, surely the Gemara should have said that. We're talking a space where the majority are from the ten tribes. Therefore, Rashi is pretty clear that the Gemara wants to highlight over here, Dafka the Halacha of Kol Kavua, of something being established in its place. And then, once something is established in its place, we look at every scenario relating to that place as 50-50 chance that these are, in fact, the people. Just to explain it more clearly. The Pasuk that the Gemara quotes tells us that these people, these population groups of the ten tribes were put into that place. The Pasuk is telling us now that those places, and all these places, those places become places established for Jewish population. Ten Shvatim population. So therefore, the, the whole concept of their kavios is not in their neighborhood, in their homes, like the story of the boil. Did he leave his house in Ksuvas? Did he leave his house? Did he leave his neighborhood? The entire area, the entire region is impacted by the ten Shvatim. Even if there should be somebody who leaves his immediate environment, his home, and he might be kilometers away from his home, but still in that city, he is assumed to be 50-50. Kavua. He is Kavua. He is established in that whole place. has a pretty good chance that he is one of the ten Shvatim. And that explains, by the way, why Rashi repeats words that are already in the Gemara. Where are these places, as the Pasuk tells us? What's Rashi telling us that the Gemara hasn't already told us? That's because Rashi doesn't want to just tell us where the places are. Rashi is ex- explaining to us the reason why we're saying Kol Kavua over here. Because Rashi wants to explain how even those who leave their own homes, because that's quite normal that people leave their homes, especially when it comes to a wedding, because the Gemara tells us that they used to build like a special compound to house not only the wedding party but the couple after the wedding so it's likely that we're talking over here about somebody who's doing kiddushin putting a ring on somebody's finger away from his own home and still considered because the Torah tells us that in that entire region these people are considered kavua. they are established residents of this area and therefore any human that you encounter in this area Assume that it's 50-50, that they're actually from the ten tribes. Using that logic, when we talk about Mitzrayim, is that the whole reason that a person may not marry is because he's Egyptian. So it doesn't matter where in Egypt he is. So yes, he left his homestead, and he went to the little Jewish community in Alexandria or wherever he went in order to convert, it doesn't change the fact that wherever he is, he is still Kavua. And therefore, Mechza or Mechza, 50% chance that he's real Egyptian. He should not be allowed to marry a Jewish girl. Why didn't the Rambam tell us this? Why doesn't the Shulchan talk about it? 
As long as he hasn't left the borders of Egypt, doesn't matter how far from home he is, he is a 50% chance of being Egyptian and forbidden to marry a Jew even after he converts. Okay, parenthetically, for a second, we see, obviously, there's a difference between Rashi and Toysavis. Toysavis is of the view that the physical majority of people in those regions were ten tribes. That's only in that context. That's because the, 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 the discussion over there is whether or not you could rely on the fact that this is a Jewish person and his Kiddushin is real. So the fact that they're in that particular place is not what's going to influence the Kiddushin or not. Whereas Mashenkin bin Yonenu, where we're talking about an Egyptian, the geography will influence whether or not this person can marry. The whole reason why a convert may not be allowed to marry Jewish would be because he's Egyptian. Meaning, meaning that he is somebody who belongs to the original indigenous population of Egypt. Toysus would agree with that. As long as such a person is inside the borders of Mitzrayim, that person I have to consider very good chance that he's Egyptian and may not marry even after he converts. Unlike the case of the Aseris Ashvatim, where he says, I'm just looking at the nature of the population. There are a lot of people over here who are probably from the Aseris Ashvatim. And so one of them could well be the person who's doing this Kiddushin. Why are we having this whole discussion? Because, because this really strengthens our original question. Considering, as the Levush told us, there definitely had to have been indigenous Egyptians who remained even after the assault of Sancherev. And the only reason you'd allow somebody who converts to Judaism to marry Jewish would be because he has left the entire region and only then can we look at the majority of people in the region and say he's one of those. You would have expected that the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch would have made a practical distinction between a, an Egyptian convert who leaves Egypt, who we now assume belongs to the non-Egyptian majority, and he can marry a Jewish person immediately. We have to distinguish between an Egyptian convert who is still in the country, in which case we believe that he is part of the established reality of the indigenous Egyptian population, or at least 50% chance of that. And therefore, he should not be allowed to marry a Jewish woman until three generations down the line. So all of that obviously is going to influence our perspective on why we cannot go live in Egypt today. So it all depends on how we understand the nature of that minority indigenous Egyptian population. In order to understand that, that concept, we're going to introduce another question, big question, that will actually be the source of the answer. We'll have to look at a very big question, which the Shulchan asks. Gemara Nazir says an interesting thing. There's a principle of a woman who doesn't leave home. 
such a thing exists. She's very tznius. She follows the, the, the Pasuk that says that the real honor of a princess is intimate behind closed doors. So if you have a woman who doesn't really leave home, that woman is rated halachically as kavua. She is established in that space in her home. The Gemara then continues. So the Gemara there says, what happens if uh, sometimes she's got to go to the marketplace? I mean, even a woman who pretty much stays at home, it's not like she'll never leave. So she goes out into the marketplace. What happens if that's where somebody encountered her and that's where somebody... Uh, somebody um, approached her for Kiddushin, says the Gemara, interesting thing, because her intention is to go back home, because that's where she really sees as a center of gravity, so therefore even when she leaves home, she's in the market, because realistically, she's going to go back to her place where she is established, that that is her space. She's going back to where she rests. Then she has the halacha of being established in her place, even when she's physically not in her place. In other words, the Gemara is looking at the possibility that you could have somebody who physically moves and still retains an anchor of their real place. Imkain. So now, going back to our story of this man who is an Egyptian convert, who leaves town, even leaves the country, let's say, to go and um, and propose and, and marry a Jewish woman. How do you call him called a Parish? How do you say he's left home? Surely, even if he's left to go marry this Jewish woman, if he ever intends to go back to Mitzrayim, surely that's his anchor. Surely that's his place. Surely that's now what is considered to be where he really is. So the answer to all of this will hinge on the wording the Rambam uses. What does he say? Any person who separates himself from the Egyptian community in order to convert, we consider now that he actually belongs to the majority, again, called the Parish. Anybody who removes himself from the original group of people, now we consider to belong to the majority of that group. The majority of people in Egypt are non-Egyptian. He leaves that majority in order to convert. We consider him part of the majority non-Egyptian. Why did the Rambam have to include that he separated himself in order to convert? Logically, surely, if he leaves town without intention to convert, for whatever reason it is that he leaves town, surely we'll we'll say, call the parish, you meet him on the street, you meet him at a fair in Dubai, you look at this guy and say, he's probably not Egyptian. Yes, he comes from Egypt. He's probably not Egyptian. Why did the Rambam have to tether it specifically to conversion? 
teaching us something incredibly important. When it comes to this halacha of determining whether or not a man can marry Jewish, it has nothing to do with moving out of his place. It's a different kind of separation. The very fact that he wants to convert, that is the greatest thing to separate him from the original population. Because to separate yourself could be in two ways. You could separate yourself physically. So one way is you leave place X, you emigrate, and you plan never to return. One possibility. So parish means geographically. The other way to separate from a group is theologically, ideologically, conceptually, or in this case, the person's status with regards to halacha. How the Torah now views this person. Where the Torah views that this person has now left a particular kind of status and adapted, adopted a new status. Like in our case. Here the person is leaving his original status of being non-Jewish, Egyptian. And through the conversion process is achieving now a new status of being Jewish. There's no way to go back. If a person leaves their geographical location, anything can happen. And at some point they can go back home and then we're worried. Maybe that was always their real anchor. And maybe they were always kavua. And maybe we were never allowed to consider them to be part of the majority. And we should have always worried that they're Egyptian. But a person who converts, you can't go back. Considering that the nature of this person's separation from the community is conversion, there is no going back. That's why the Rambam Shachonoruch were very comfortable to say in clear, unequivocal terms that therefore today that we have already a question as to whether they, those Egyptians are real Egyptians. And this person is Polish. How? Not because he left home, but because he left Egyptian society by converting even if he's still living in the physical country of Egypt. Even if he's living in his original home. He's considered parish. He's considered to have separated himself from the group. The very fact that he has converted is the ultimate separation from the group. Whereas all the other indigenous Egyptians staying in the land of Egypt, they might be a tiny majority, a minority, they are established. That's their space. That's their permanent residence. And therefore, we may never go back to live in Egypt because their influence is still powerful, and that's why we can't be in Egypt. So in other words, we've seen that there are two different areas of halacha here. If I want to know the status of a Mitzri with regards to marrying a Jewish girl after he converts, the conversion separates him enough from whoever lives in Egypt that we can say, called the Parish, whoever separates belongs to the majority, and the majority are not indigenous Egyptians. No delay in him marrying a Jewish girl. You want to go to Egypt? You want to go into their space where they are still original indigenous Mitzrim, even if they're a tiny minority? doesn't matter. They're kavur. They're in their space. And therefore, mechza, mechza, they have a tremendous influence over the space, and you're not allowed to go there. 
Why can you not live in Egypt today? Because of the handful of original Egyptians. In fact, when you're talking about people who are indigenous to a place, it's not logical to say that just because there are many, many more people, they will just dissolve. Not from the perspective of the majority of immigrants, not from the perspective of the minority indigenous. Share, number one. Yes, we're looking at a numbers game over here. The number of indigenous people is small. But the reason we're not allowed to go to Mitzrayim is because we're worried about the quality of life and the influences in that space. So we have a principle in Aloha, that when you have something that is considered to be choshev, it's considered to be important or significant, it doesn't just dissolve in the majority of other elements. This is Egypt. These are their people. You go to Egypt today, you'll still see artifacts and you'll still see cultural elements that go back to ancient Egypt. It still infuses the nature of the place, regardless of the population numbers. So therefore, we're concerned about the impact even today. Then there's another factor. The majority of immigrants who came into Egypt are not philosophically opposed to Egyptian culture. They're corrupt themselves. It's just that the Egyptians are the most corrupt. That doesn't mean these people are decent. They're also corrupt. Therefore, it's impossible to assume that their majority in number will dissolve or overwhelm the minority of people who have a certain belief system that these people wouldn't necessarily oppose. So whichever way you look at it, it's not simply a numbers game. It's an influence game. And when you're in your own space, as they call it, home ground advantage, you have a greater sphere of influence. So the Egyptian handful, the indigenous Egyptians, color the reality of Mitzrayim till today. Now, what lesson could we possibly learn from this? Now that we know that there definitely are indigenous Egyptians, or at least their descendants still in Egypt today, that will infuse us to get more involved in serving Hashem even better. Why? We know that every single thing taught in the Torah is um, eternal. Every lesson in Torah applies at all times and all places. But of course, every one of us will understand the distinction between things that you cannot actually fulfill today, other than in a spiritual sense, so that's what's eternal about them, compared to things that you can actually do physically today. So it's like the difference between carbonos and putting on tefillin. Tefillin you can do, so you kind of relate to it a little bit more strongly than carbonos, which is more a spiritual concept for us today. If there's something which you could physically do today, that implies that the, its eternal nature is more compelling. Because look, it manifests in the physical world in a way that everybody could see it. And this applies to us as well. See if the Torah tells us, 
Hashem says, you saw with your own eyes what I did to Mitzrayim. And therefore now you should listen to my voice and observe my, my covenant. And then you'll be my treasured nation from all the nations, my a, a kingdom of Koyhanim and a holy nation. Move on from the way that the Pasuk speaks. It implies that the beginning part of the Pasuk, look, you've seen what I did to Mitzrayim. That is an introduction to the second half of the Pasuk. Where Hashem says, I'll bring you to me, and if you listen to my words, you'll keep my covenant, you'll become a treasure. In other words, what's the Torah telling us? When we see with our own eyes the miracles that Hashem does, which miracles? When we see with our own eyes the way that Hashem takes out retribution against those nations that have harmed us, that excites us to now want to commit ourselves to Hashem. Hashem's got our back. He's looking after us. Look, the people who harmed us, look what Hashem did to them. So therefore, He cares about us. We care about Him. So therefore, you look at Mitzrayim, you see that Hashem punishes Mitzrayim. When you look at Mitzrayim going through things, and whatever difficulties they may have. And you recognize those are the same Mitzrayim. Those are the descendants of the original ancient indigenous Mitzrayim. Any time that that happens, we look at this and we see it's exactly Hashem punishing the Mitzrayim again. You have to bear in mind that this Sicha is around about the time of the Six-Day War. So you can understand the context of what the Rebbe is talking about in a very powerful way. When we see what's happening to Mitzrayim, it should awaken us and excite us. That we should be more committed to the covenant we have with Hashem. We should become stronger in keeping Torah mitzvahs. We should behave like a chosen nation. We should behave like a nation of Koyanim and a holy people. And that should all be a great uh, preparation to listen to Hashem's voice. Which brings to the day. Which day? The day of the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach himself promised to Rabbi Shobin Levi. It should happen very, very speedily.